So guys, that's loud. Turn it down, Mike. Gosh. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. That was awesome. All right. So what are we starting today? Romans. I'm stoked about teaching this stuff. I'm so excited. All right. It's so good that everybody needs to come up here and get some note paper. One through seven. But if you read one through twelve, that's great. All right. Note paper. Here, we pass this out. Note paper and pens and pencils and stuff. All right. Yeah, we're doing Romans one, one through seven. Hey, Mike, can you cut on the house lights and cut off the uh, whatchamacallums? Just hit all the buttons. Really? That's fine. That's awesome. You're halfway prepared for next week. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Let's open up to Romans, chapter 1. What do you guys know about Romans? Paul wrote it. Okay, that's good. Rome, right? All right. Well, as you know, Paul has several letters, right? He's got a lot of books. What are some of the other books Paul wrote? He's got, he's got a lot. That's what, that's what we're getting at, okay? Paul wrote some books, right? He wrote some letters. All right, so there's several letters, and Romans is the first. Okay, why do you think Romans was set in place first? It wasn't because the priority of the date or the priority of when he wrote it or anything like that. It's because of, it's awesome. That's why it was put first. If you were there writing the canon with the people who wrote the canon, the canon is the people who put the Bible in order in the way it is today, you'd be sitting there and they'd be like, hey, Romans is awesome, so let's put it first. Okay? That's pretty much what they said. So, um, and, and mainly it's the longest and fullest of all the books. Okay? It's the long, it has the most stuff in it. Okay? All right, so it's gathered uh, from some of the passages in the letter that was written Anno Christi 56. What's Anno Christi? What does that exactly stand for? In the year of Christ, okay? In the year of Christ, which is the same as after death, A.D., okay? But I like Anno Christi because in the year of Christ just sounds awesome, okay? So, and then the first part of the letter is doctrinal, okay? We're going to look at some things that are focused on doctrine, all right? And then the second part, of the, which is like the first 11 chapters, all right? And then the second part, the last five books, um, is practical, okay, to how we live today. All right, so today we're going to get into chapter one, which is going to do the following, okay? It is going to... I got it. There. What we're going to do today. We're going to have verses chapter 1, 1 through 7. Okay, we're going to give a preface to the introduction to the letter. And that really continues to verse 16. Okay, so next week we're going to hit verses 8 through 16. All right? All right, so it begins to give... Mike? Yes. Yeah, if you can get... No, not, not all those. Just the ones, one, like one set. Can I get this one on? Somehow? 
That's why you can't read. Okay. Yeah, just cut them off. That's fine. Does that work? Okay, cool. Because I can still read now, too. <laughs> All right, so and then the last thing, it begins to give a description of the Gentile world, uh, which will lead to the proof of justification through faith. Okay, we've all heard of that before. We're going to hit that. It's going to be sweet. All right, so today we're going to get in chapter 1. It's going to do the following, those things. All right, and as we look around uh, at the media and the newspapers and stuff today, we hear a lot of bad news, right? There's a lot of stuff going on, and mostly what the media covers and mostly what we look at is usually bad news. Oh, somebody got killed in Iraq today. Oh, um, you know, there's a hurricane somewhere and like 90 people died or whatever. It's most things that are covered on news today as bad news. And it really seems to be getting worse as the days goes on, right? There's like new wars breaking out and there's worse storms and there's more death and there's school shootings and there's all these different things that happen. It just seems to get worse and worse. But what we don't realize is that what is happening on the national level, what's happening across the nation, really across the world, really only happening, is really only happening because of what's happening on a personal level, okay? Because what has to happen? Somebody has to take action in order for something to occur, right? And we hear the news nationally, right? And we get the news nationally, but what really happened was one person or some people decided that on a personal level they were going to take this act, okay? Now, maybe not hurricanes. That might be a bad example because even though Randy can create hurricanes, not many people can, okay? But Randy's a good guy and he's not going to do that. Um, we actually call Randy the hurricane <coughs> from now on. So, <coughs> all right, so... But what happens, the reason things take place and the reason events happen that is in human control is because somebody decided that event was going to take place. Okay, it's on a personal level. <clears throat> and as all the personal problems, animosities, and fears increase in each of our own lives, uh, so do the counterparts on a larger scale. So as every action takes place in every personal life, the same thing that counterparts that as a national, whatever, happens nationally. Does that make sense? All right, it all starts with the person. All right, so humans are in the hold of something that is terrifyingly powerful. And that holds at the very core of who we are. And if we leave it unchecked, it's going to push us to self-destruction in one form or another. Okay, the power we're talking about is sin. Okay? And sin is capable of producing bad news. Right? And it's only capable of producing bad news. Every time sin happens, bad news happens. Okay? Period. End. There's no good in sin at all. Alright, so sin is bad news in every dimension. Among its consequences are four inevitable byproducts. Okay, that guarantee misery and sorrow for a world taken captive. What are these four things? Wow, the forward bucket worked. I made you change all those slides for nothing. That's good. Alright, so first, sin has selfishness at its heart. Sin has selfishness at its heart. Alright, when we sin, we were created for worship, right? We were created to do these things for God. All right, we, we looked at our gifts last week, or the past five weeks. We looked at those things, and we found out that God created us for a specific purpose, right? Number one, to worship Him, but number two, to glorify Him by doing the things that God made us to do. Okay, so first, sin has selfishness at its heart, because when we sin, we're not doing the things that we're supposed to do, and it harms us and everybody else around us. Sin has selfishness at its heart. Second, sin produces guilt. How many of you guys have ever sinned as a Christian and not felt guilty about it once you realized it was a sin, right? Sin produces guilt. Third, sin produces meaninglessness. Sin produces meaninglessness. Now, this is, this is kind of interesting because when we sin, um, it's selfish, right? And we do things that are our heart's desire. 
Okay, it produces guilt, but it produces meaninglessness. How does it produce meaningless? Meaninglessness. How is that? We were created for God's purpose, right? That's the only meaning we have in this world, period, and as Christians, to bring God glory. When we sin, we lose all meaning to our life. That's crazy, right? When we sin, it is meaningless. That's nuts. You know what's even crazier than that? Hell, your entire life and your entire existence for eternity is meaningless. Nothing to it. And you're going to feel that way. All right. So this world today, it's always seeking for new things and trying to fill in these holes with all these different ideas. The reason the holes aren't getting filled is because every act they're taking is meaningless. When you're outside of God's will, every act that you're taking, every relationship that you pursue, every idea that you go after is meaningless. Because it's outside of God's will. That's rough, right? Fourth, sin produces hopelessness. All right, you're meaningless, okay? You're not going to have much hope. Okay, you're going to want things. You're going to desire not to be meaningless. You're going to want to take the next steps to make your life better. But every time you do that, it's going to fail. It's going to produce hopelessness. Because if you continue to fail, you continue to look down on yourself. And when you continue to look down on yourself, you have no hope. You guys with? All right, so, but even with all that bad news, okay, Paul's letter to the Romans is that there is good news that is truly good and will always be good. Okay, so Rome was this place. A lot of smart people there, a lot of people doing some things. As you guys know, Rome made roads first. They had all these new inventions, and it was a great city, a powerful city. They had great leadership that bought them to that point. But through all that, they were doing things to seek pleasure. Okay? They were doing things to seek what their body wanted, not what God wanted. Okay? And which eventually led to their fall. We said sin's going to lead to destruction. It's going to happen. And when that does happen... It can be the fall of a nation. It can be the fall of self. It can be the fall of many things, but it will bring destruction. All right? So Paul's writing to them and say, hey, look, I know you guys feel this way. I know you guys are selfish at your hearts. I know you guys have guilt. I know you feel meaningless, and I know you have no hope. Okay, but here's the deal. I have something that's going to give you hope, and here it is. This is good news that is going to be here for all time. Okay? It will always be here. So <clears throat> Paul writes this book, and... Um, he calls all these different things. He tries to captivate in, in these several different ways and these beautiful picture of the good news. And he calls the good news the blessed good news, the good news of salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's Son, and the good news of the grace of God. Okay? And what's even more important is that the letter begins and ends with the good news. So Paul's focus here to the Romans was they are in sin. And he's writing this letter because that they are in sin they need to get out of sin, and they need to know how to do that. Okay? Even the people who believed in Christ and were seeking God and were trying to find their Messiah and trying to understand all these things, even after the death of Christ, they were lost, and they were looking to the wrong places. Okay? So Paul said, look, this is where you need to look. You have this meaningless feeling. I have something that will be meaningful at all times. Even when you screw up, it still means everything that it ever was meant to mean. All right? Cool. Verse number one, we're going to look at um, Paul's master, uh, Paul's office, and Paul's purpose, okay? And verse number one says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That gets a lot louder when I do this. All right. So number one, we're going to look at Paul's master, okay? Paul addresses, he says, Paul, 
a bondservant in Christ Jesus. What he said is, I'm Paul, and I'm also a bondservant of Christ Jesus. That's how I identify myself, okay? So what is a bondservant? The Greek word for bondservant is doulos, okay? <clears throat> and the one that is used here, okay? And its definition has a pretty wide range. Sometimes it's used of a person who voluntarily served others, okay? But mostly referred to those who were unwilling, who were in unwilling and permanent bondage with death being the only release. Okay, but there is two definitions. One, voluntary. And two, being that you are a slave no matter what until you die. Okay? Alright, there's an equivalent to the word in Hebrew. It's called ebed. Okay? And it's used hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. It has the same wide range of connotations. Exact same word, different language. Okay? So what, what does the Mosaic Law say about a bondservant? Since we're going back to the Hebrew and looking at the Mosaic Law, it says the Mosaic Law provided for an indentured servant to voluntarily become a permanent bond slave of a master he loved and respected. Okay? Exodus 21, 5 through 6 says this. If a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. You guys catch that? If, this, if the slave says, hey, master, look, I love my job, I love my wife, and I love my kids, saying that, hey, you know, I don't love it just for me. I love it because this is what's best for my family, okay? This is what's best for my life right now. Then the master will say, okay, good, you're a faithful servant. You know, I appreciate that. So he's going to take him before God. He's going to pierce his ear with an awl. He's going to say, you shall serve me permanently. Okay? And what that means is that that person willingly is under service to that person until death. Okay? You guys following? All right, so a bondservant. So the practice, that practice right there best reflects Paul's use of the word doulos or bondservant here. Okay, Paul had given himself wholeheartedly in love to the divine master who saved him from sin and death. Okay? Now you notice the first part of Exodus 21, 5 through 6, it says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. Okay, when Paul was met on the road in Damascus, and, you know, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You can't kick it into goods. We just talked about it in there. Paul decided he was going to love Christ. He decided that his life was changed. He decided that um, at that point, he was going to go into bondservantness, okay, with Christ. He said, I love you, and I want to be yours. That's the picture we get here as Paul as a bondservant. Okay? That's the place we need to be as bondservants to Christ. All right? So that's what best reflects that practice right there in Exodus. Um, and the other words Paul used to describe himself as a servant. Um, that change? Okay. Uh, word number one, diakonos. Okay? It's used in 1 Corinthians 3.5, and it was commonly used to describe a table waiter. Okay, but as in the word doulos, bondservant, which we just talked about, the emphasis here is on subservice and insignificance, not in honor of being that slave. Okay, so humility. And the number one, huperetes, okay? Used in 1 Corinthians 4.1, says the word literally means under rowers. Okay, and it's referring to the lowest level of rowers and the large galley of a Roman ship. Okay, this was possibly the hardest, most dangerous, and most demanding work a slave could do. These slaves were considered the lowest of low. And Paul referred to himself as an under-rower. Alright, so let's look at these under-rowers. What's so bad about this job? Okay, the, the tree means, okay, which is the name of the ships that the Romans were using at that time, were 120 feet long. Okay, they were powered by rowers arranged in three rows. Okay, the crew was made up of 200 men, 170 rowers, one man to each oar, and the rest rowing at each of the two lower levels. Okay, <clears throat> sorry, there were 62 men rowing at the top level, and there were 54 men rowing at each of the lower levels. The commander of the triremine, okay, was a triarch, okay, he was the head of the triremine, triarch, all right, 
So the oarsman chief was the horator, okay, one who exhorts or encourages. Okay, they were built low to the ground. The bottom row of rowers was just 18 inches above the water line. Okay, these Roman ships. And very narrow. You can imagine a ship shaped like this. They're sitting right here 18 inches below the bottom of the ship. Rowing the boat. Can you also imagine they're 18 inches above the water, which means they have the most painful job, right? Their oars are stretched out as far as they can. They have this massive oar to row, this 120-foot-long ship, okay? And they only have 18 inches of clearance to get that oar in the water, which means they're going to have a lot more pressure and force against them trying to row, okay? So it was the hardest job, the most uncomfortable job, and it was the most tiring, okay? So the, the, place, the displacement of the vessel reached 230 tons. That's a lot of displacement, right? Which means this boat was not easy to row, okay? These guys had a terrible job, okay? So the job was bad, okay? And not wanted by anybody and would many times result in death because what happens when you get into a battle and a ship starts to stink? What part goes under first? The bottom, okay? How are the under rowers going to get out with three other levels on top of them? They're not, okay? The ship starts to sink, the under rowers are dead, okay? So as you can imagine, this job, first of all, it was just a terrible job. Second of all, you're probably going to die, okay, because water leaks into those boats, right? There's, there's stories of people who are second level are still rowing when everybody below is drowning because they just can't get out of the water, okay? So it's, it's just crazy stuff. Imagine in a storm when water's washing over the deck, where's it all going to fall? The bottom of the boat, <laughs> right? All right, this was not a cool thing, not a cool thing at all. All right, so Paul's not belittling the calling that he has in God. He's not saying, look, just because I serve God means I'm the worst person in the world. Okay, that's not what he's saying. All right, we have God, but he's saying to have the best possible walk with God, we must give our lives completely to him. Okay? Paul just showed us who his master is. He understood there was no in-between. Okay? There was no, I can be the middle level of a rower, because then I can serve myself a little bit and help myself out and God. Okay? I can keep the ship moving, but I'm safe. Okay? It was, I am the lowest of lows, I'm pushing this ship the hardest. I'm going to give everything I have. I'm going to get tired. I'm going to get worn out. I possibly might die, which he does. But I'm going to do all this for Christ. And if I give anything less than that, it's meaningless. Crazy, right? <clears throat> all right, so let's look at Paul's office. All right? Did everybody get that last slide? Good to go? All right, so Paul's office. Okay, he was called, as an apostle says... Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, okay? All right, the word used here in the Greek for apostle is apostolos, okay? And is where we get our word apostle, but more fitting translation is delegate or sent out one. That's a more direct translation. Delegate or sent out one. And because of that, it separates Paul from the rest. A delegate is elected by the people and used to relay their messages to others. Okay, this separates Paul because it means that God has appointed him to do the work of him directly. Okay? He was appointed by God. Okay? And to relay this message that God gave him onto the people. Okay? He was part of the unique group appointed by Christ to have the historical role as the foundation of the church. Alright? So why was this calling so special? Why was it any different than any other calling? Okay? We see in 1 Corinthians 15.8 that the risen Christ appeared to him and chose him for a very special and specific mission to the Gentiles. Okay? So how does the verse we are studying show that this is, is a divine apostleship? Okay, let's look at the word called. Okay, the word called, the Greek for this word is kletos. Okay? Kletos. And it means invited or more specifically appointed. Okay? It's a very direct term, meaning that in the order 
<clears throat> meaning that the order came from somebody else, not from Paul. Okay? In this case, it came from Christ. Let's go to Galatians 1.1. Somebody open up Galatians 1.1. It says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Alright, so number one, we have proof right there. We don't really have to look at the word called. Okay, but even more proof is that kletos, right, means he was appointed. Okay, and that means you were told by somebody else to do something. If we look here, we saw he was told by Jesus Christ, which makes this apostleship a divine apostleship. Alright, so why is he giving this introduction? Why is he even looking at this? So by using the introduction like this, Paul writes not as a private individual or as even a gifted teacher, but as a kletos apostolos, okay, or appointed delegate for Christ, a called apostle, right, whose words can then only bear the authority of God himself, mainly to say there can't be another word. This is what God said, and any other word is gone. So what Paul was doing here was that he said, look, God put me in this position. God called me kletos apostolos, an appointed delegate of himself, to preach this word to you. And since this is a divine appointment, everything that I'm telling you right now is God's word, not Paul's word, not your word, not the words that you might want it to be, but it is God's word, okay? Which means any other word that you guys are speaking between yourselves is absolutely wrong. If you're not following the things I'm about to tell you, you are sinning, right? That's what that introduction does, right? So that's a lot from like two words, right? And this, this is why Paul sets it up this way. That's why it's important to look at everything. Okay, but still, why this separation um, is so important to Paul. <clears throat> All right, so what's Paul's purpose? Set apart for the gospel. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, is set apart for the gospel of God. Okay? So we saw his master, right? And what else did we see? His master, his office, Right? And now we're looking at his purpose. Okay, so we just discussed how Paul is called and set apart to, um, <clears throat> to do this. So why claim it again right here? We know he's already set apart by God, okay, to, to exclaim this message. So why say the same thing again? Set apart for the gospel of God. Okay, we got that because you're divinely appointed. Okay, we understand that. All right? So why claim it again with different words? Well, being called as an apostle uh, meant that his whole life was set apart for God's service. Okay? But even as a person who has been called to a special type of place or service cannot be effective, he is not also separated <clears throat> for the gospel of God. Okay? So, Josh is called as a Sunday school teacher. Josh, you went into that Sunday school class and taught other words other than God's words. Even though you're divinely appointed by God to be there, he wants you in that position. If you didn't teach the right thing, what would that mean? That'd be bad, right? You're not doing the right thing. Okay? So what Paul is saying is basically, hey, I'm called by God. I am divinely appointed as an apostle. I'm supposed to be here talking to you, and the words I'm going to say are divinely from God. Okay? But I'm also not going to teach you the wrong thing, because I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Okay? I'm going to teach you what God says. All right. So, but still, why was this separation so important to Paul? Okay. The word used here for set apart, it says set apart for the gospel of God. The word used here is apocorizo. Okay? And you say it apocorizo. All right. It is used of setting apart to God the firstborn, of offering to God the first fruits, of consecrating to God the Levites, and of separating Israel to God from other peoples. Okay, this is all Old Testament uses. 
right, there was to be no intermingling of the chosen people with the Gentile nations or of the sacred with the profane and the ordinary. Okay? So this word set apart was very divinely focused. It was only used in situations where God said, set apart the firstborn from me. Apocorizo, the firstborn from me. Okay? Only when it was referencing God. Okay, so now Paul just used this word. The exact same word that God said, I'm set apart. Okay? Paul is divinely appointed to be set apart to teach exactly the word of God. Alright? So, stopping there for a minute. How often do we bring the profane and the ordinary into the sacred? Okay, every day we wake up and we begin to mix the profane with the sacred. Uh, we approach God with unclean hands and with no fear or reverence. <clears throat> what about the music we listen to? We could be worshiping God and instead we're listening to things that draw us away from God. Uh, we need to look at what we fill our minds with, our hearts with, and we need to cut out the things that draw us away from what is perfect. Okay? So many times... Your question? Slow down? Okay. Um, so many times we, we look at things and we wake up in the morning and we think, okay, I'm a Christian, that's good, you know, uh, thank you God for making me a Christian. But the moment after we say that, we begin to mix profane with the ordinary. Okay? We look at things in ways we're not supposed to look at them. We look at things we're not supposed to look at. Okay? We do things we're not supposed to do. We listen to things we're not supposed to listen to. When all that time, we could be doing things that bring us closer to God. You guys following? So how many times do we mix profane with the ordinary? God called us apocorizo, set apart when we were saved. Right? Which means we are divinely called to be different. Which means everything we do should be different. All right? So, back to the word apocorizo. We saw how it meant to separate in many different instances, okay? Through the Old Testament. I can read those again. It says, um, setting apart of God the firstborn, of offering God the first fruits, of consecrating to God the Levites, and of separating Israel to God from the other peoples, okay? And also to set apart the Gentiles from the chosen people of Israel, okay? All right. So, the word also has ties to the Aramaic term Pharisee. Okay, this is pretty interesting. And it carries the same idea of separation. However, it's only part of the word. Okay, the Pharisees, however, were not set apart by God or according to God's standards, but had rather set themselves apart according to the standards of their own traditions. Alright? So, Paul had once been a Pharisee, right? And, and not just been one, but probably the most ardent of the time. Alright? He was doing, he was killing Christians left and right. He, like he said, he was there to vote for their death. That's how he put it. Alright? And it was a self-appointed position. God didn't put him there. Okay? So, but now Paul was divinely, not humanly, set apart for the work of God and his gospel. So what Paul was doing here was like, yes, I was a Pharisee. Okay? I was a paca. That's the part of the word that translates in the Pharisee. Okay? I was set apart. Okay? But now I'm a pacarizo. I'm set apart due to God. You guys following? So Paul just told the Romans, he just said, look, I'm a bondservant. My master is Christ. I'm going to serve him to everything I have, to the lowest level, and I'm going to give everything I have to meet with Christ. Okay? Then he said, okay, I'm apostle. I'm here to teach you the word, and I'm called by God. Kletos apostolos. Okay? And now he's coming down here and said, set apart for the gospel, but I'm not just set apart to teach you things because I want to teach you things, not because I'm a good teacher, not because I can do these things well, but because God told me I had to. Okay? I'm not set apart as a Pharisee anymore. I'm set apart to teach you Christ. All right? So all these things um, are extremely important. Okay, all these things are, um, they're just, Paul had to introduce himself this way in order for the Romans to even begin to listen to him. Okay? You guys following? Good. Verse 2. 
says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. I'm spitting everywhere. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. All right, verse 2. And I titled this, this section Revolutionary with a question mark. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. All right. <clears throat> so now we see who Paul is. We know who his master is. We know what he was called to do. And we know what his purpose is in doing the thing he was called to do. Okay, so he's now going to talk about the promise in verse 2 and the person of the good news in verses 3 and 4, which we're going to get to. All right, so first off, let's get an overall thought on the point behind the verse. Number one, the words he is speaking are from the Holy Scriptures, okay, which means it's from divine origin. Okay, Holy Scriptures means divine origin, okay, or from God. All right, so with that being said, Paul's saying that it was promised in the Scriptures means it was promised in the Old Testament. All right, that means that the gospel is not a new thought, nor was it a thought for the first time in the New Testament. Okay, nor was it a quick change in God's plan or strategy. It was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so you guys following this setup? Okay. All right, which means it was promised in what we now call the Old Testament. Okay, so what Paul's saying is, look guys, I'm not teaching anything new here. If you guys would have been reading the stuff you're supposed to be reading, these Holy Scriptures, you would have known that Christ was coming all along. You would have known that we would have this relationship with God. You would have known that you can go to God right now on your own. I wouldn't have to be working through the Gentiles to get to you. Okay? Paul's kind of shoving it in their face. Like, look, if you were doing what you were supposed to do, you would have knew it already. Okay? <clears throat> so it's old news. All right? So Paul was frequently accused of preaching and teaching a revolutionary message. Okay? Unheard of in ancient Judaism. So Paul was accused of saying, hey, this Christ guy you're talking about, this relationship with God you're saying we can have, that's crazy. All right? You're a revolutionary in this Jewish world. Okay? We don't want to hear this stuff. This is not in our books. Okay, you're making this stuff up. All right, so maybe he said it for the sake of the Jewish critics, making sure they understood that the message he taught did not originate with him or even with Jesus' earthly ministry. Okay, so he teaches that message. He teaches is actually old news of the Hebrew Scriptures now fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ. So maybe the entire story wasn't there in the Old Testament, but Christ was there. And what Christ was going to do for the people was there. Okay, they just missed it. So Paul's saying, now, look, look, you guys are so far behind the ball now. Like, these guys understand it. Why can't you get it? And I'll tell you why you can't get it. It's because you looked in the wrong place. You did the wrong things. Okay? So Paul's kind of getting in their face a little bit. And what is he talking about here when he says prophets? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets. This is just more backup that it was in the books that they could have read already. Okay? And basically what he said is, like, so with these prophets... Paul refers to is not really one single prophet. He didn't have one guy in mind. He, he really refers to the Old Testament writers in general. Okay? All of who were spokesmen for God or prophets. Okay? That's the definition of prophets, spokesmen for God. Uh, so it's unlikely that Paul had a certain reference in mind when he said this. It's evident throughout the Old Testament. What he was getting at is that you guys had so many chances. Okay? You have all these stories. You got all these pages of stuff to read, but you didn't. Okay? So he's just punching this through their head. He hit him, smacked him in the face once, now he smacked him in the face twice. Okay, now, again, why did Paul say Holy Scriptures? Alright? This is the only time the term slash phrase Holy Scriptures is used anywhere. Okay? Holy Scriptures. Why here? Okay, why did Paul make a reference to say, hey, why didn't he just say, hey, Jews, the Scriptures you should have read? You didn't. Okay? Why did he make a reference to the Holy Scriptures? Alright, <clears throat> it's probably used in a contrast of two different things. Okay, the priests of that day had written all kinds of scriptures, okay, or rabbinical writings, or the Talmud, which Matt talked about earlier in the in the lesson. Um, 
so these rabbinical writings of the Talmud, which in that time were followed more zealously than the actual Holy Scripture or the Old Testament that we know of. Okay? The rabbinical writings had little or no reference to the um, gospel, but the real Old Testament did. Most Jews of that day were so accustomed to looking to the rabbinical tradition that the, only ho- that the Holy Scriptures were looked at on more of a sacred relic okay, than a source of truth. Christ is in the Old Testament, and it contains at least 332 prophecies about Christ. Old Testament. 332 prophecies. That's a lot of times to miss Christ. Okay? <clears throat> Most of which were fulfilled at His first coming. Okay, the Old Testament is filled with truths that predict and lay the groundwork for the New Testament. Jesus taught nothing that was either disconnected from or contrary to the Old Testament. Okay? He said this, actually, in Matthew five seventeen through 18. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay? For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. All right? He didn't come to change anything. He didn't come to make up something new. He didn't come as a change in God's plan. He came to fulfill what had already been promised to the Jews. Okay? So... We wonder how the Jews could miss their Messiah. We wonder how Jesus could come and do the miracles he did and do the things that he did, and they can just look right over it and say, hey, that's not him. That's not our guy. Right? Um, but we look at what they did and, and the things they were looking to. They were looking to the world, the rabbinical tradition, instead of the sacred books that they had from Moses and all these different things they had been through. Right? They had all these awesome stories, right? all this past, all this history where God had said, look, you're going to be here. And God got on there, and then they said, screw you, God, I'm going somewhere else. And they went somewhere else, but God said, no, you're coming back. And they went back. They have all these references, all these ideas, all these prophecies about Christ. 332 times Christ was mentioned. 332 times. We see here that for years and years, to the point that everyone was so used to looking towards the rabbinical law that the people had no contact with Scripture at all. They didn't own Bibles like we did. They went to the rabbis and said, hey, rabbi, you know, what do I do in this situation? Okay, they went to the temple and they, and they looked at the, the scriptures. But what was that on the table wasn't the Old Testament. It was what the rabbis had written. Okay, it was these books of traditions and ideas. Okay, no contact with scripture, the real scripture. And the people were taught the ideas of the rabbis instead of what the word of God said. And they missed out on their Messiah. The only way out of this sin-filled world was missed because they looked away from scripture for answers. How many times we do the exact same thing? Daily, right? Um, as an individual, a group, a town, a city, a state, a nation, or even as the entire world, guys, we're going to miss our Messiah. And we are, constantly. We're missing things Jesus wants to do in our lives. Our lives are so focused on so many other things that we're blind when it comes to God and what He wants to do with us. Okay? The, Jew, the Jews of that time missed what they had been living for. Their entire life, all that history in the Old Testament up until where they were right then, was meant to look for the Messiah. That's what their goal was, as a Jewish community, to find their Messiah, their Savior. Right? And just because they looked away from Scripture, they missed out on who God sent for them. How much are we missing by looking at our world for answers? And How much are we not doing for God? And how much are we not letting God do for us? Daily. Guys, they're going to miss out on Christ, or they missed out on Christ, and we're going to do it too. Christ already died on the cross for us. They put him there. That's how much they missed out on Christ. They killed him. But you know what? All the sins that we do were just as much 
part of killing Christ as they're missing him in that day. That's crazy, right? And we don't, we don't seem to get that. We don't seem to, you know, it doesn't sink in. Guys, we're missing out on things God wants to do for us. We're missing out on what God has in store for us. Because we're not focused on him and exactly what he wants to do. We're not in his word. We're not seeking God first. We're not looking to the things that we're supposed to be looking to. And we're missing out on our Messiah. All right, so revolutionary. Paul wasn't teaching a revolution. Um, it was a defective tradition. It was a defective traditional Judaism that was revolutionary. They had the new ideas. They had the rabbinical writings. They had the things that had nothing to do with Scripture. That was the revolution. And that's where the people were looking. It was a man-originated, man-centered, and not God-grounded idea. That was the revolution. Okay, and guess what? It was the proponents of that man-made perversion that opposed Christ the strongest to the point of death. Alright, so look at our nation. No prayer in schools, no anything about God, laws trying to be passed that say we can't pray out loud in restaurants. You guys heard about that? People are trying to pass laws that say we can't pray out loud in restaurants because it is offensive to others who don't believe in Christ. So, that's the nation that is falling in the footsteps of the greatest tragedy of all time. That's the nation that's looking exactly the same as Israel was when Christ came to save them and said, I don't want it. We're doing the exact same thing. And where do you think that's going to lead us? You think it's going to lead us to greatness? You think it's going to lead us to having great leaders? You think it's going to lead us to doing the things that our nation's supposed to do? No. It's going to do the exact opposite. Nothing except for looking for answers in the very same place that the Jews looked for answers in is exactly what we're doing. And we're missing out on Christ and everything He wants to do for us. And like we said before, what starts with us moves to our cities, to our states, to our nations, and to the world. That's how important it is to follow Christ. That's how important it is to look for God in the Scripture. That's how important it is to be focused where we're supposed to be focused on, which is right here. All right, verses 3 through 4. Uh, we have this great man that came, right? We have this Messiah that came to save the world, and they missed out on him, but, but who is this man that's behind it all? Okay? Who is this person? Okay. All right, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, so Jesus, God's Son. Both of these verses emphasize the divineness and humanness of God. Okay? Both of these verses do. Okay? And there is a big mystery surrounding the concept of Jesus as God's Son. It is hard to grasp the idea that Jesus is God, okay? But He's a man, and He's separate, and He's the same, and it's, it's like contradictory, right? It's hard to grasp onto that to understand how God is capable of splitting Himself apart to be man, to not be man, to be God, but to not be multiple and the same. It's hard. All right, so there's a big mystery surrounding that. And although he himself, God is, he is himself God and Lord, he is also the Son of God. Okay? So yeah, he's, he's God, the Father, and he is the Father, but he's also the Son. Okay? How many of you guys can be a father and a son at the same time? Actually, everybody in here can. <laughs> so let's just disregard that point. Okay? So, say what? Oh, that's true. Okay. So there, my point worked. All right, so, <laughs> Scripture plainly teaches both of these things. So the issue is not whether he is the Son of God, but in what sense is he God's Son? Does that make sense? The question is not whether or not he is God's Son, because we know that. Scripture tells us that, but how is he God's Son? That's what we're wondering. 
Okay, so clearly we see that in Christ's humanness, he was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's what the verse says. Okay? Both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David. Okay, both of them. He was born as a descendant of David to the flesh. Okay? In order to fulfill prophecy, the Messiah had to be a descendant of David. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy just like he fulfilled all others. All right? As a descendant of David, Jesus inherited and reserved the right to restore and to rule David's kingdom, the promised kingdom that would be without end forever. Okay? You guys following? Old Testament prophecy. All right, so the second person of the Trinity, God's son, was born into a human family and shared human life with all other humanity. He was here. He was a man. He lived as a man, which means he shared humanity with all of us. All right? Identifying himself with fallen mankind, yet living without sin. He was just like us, yet he never fell to a temptation. Okay? All right, so because of that, he became the perfect high priest. Holy God, yet also holy man, in order that he could, Hebrews 4.15, sympathize with our weakness, one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. Okay, the perfect high priest. All right, so <clears throat> that is the gospel, the great good news. Okay, that is Jesus Christ, God became a man, who could die for all men as a substitute sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. But again, how is God also God's son? How does that happen? All right. And then this next part of the verse is even more confusing. It says, Concerning whose son, who was born as the descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power. Okay? How is he declared the son of God when he has always been? If God is God, right? That means God has always been the Trinity. From forever till forever, right? So how, at some point, can he be declared the Son of God if God is eternal? That brings up another question, right? How is he declared? Alright, so we know that he is both God and God's Son, but Paul says declared as God's Son, which means at some point, Jesus became the Son of God and was not always called that. Okay? Well, even though the plan for the Son of God is eternal, which goes both ways, past and to the future, he will always be there, the word son is a term reserved for human birth. Okay, the word son is a term reserved for human birth. All right, so that the term could only be applied to Jesus in its fullness only after he became man. You guys following? All right, son is a word reserved for human birth. We have sons. Okay? Because of that, he can only be declared God's son once he is fulfilled in prophecy to be a man. You guys with? Okay. I forgot I had that thing on. I have an itch. All right, so, <clears throat> like I said, even though the plan is eternal, which goes both ways, past and future, the word son of a term for human birth. Okay, so that term could only be applied to Jesus in its fullness only after he became a man. Okay, he was a son of God in the sense of the dutiful, loving submission to the Father, the Son of God. He looked to God as a Father. Okay, there is no question he is eternally God and eternally the second person of the Trinity. There is no, no question in that. Paul is saying that he is declared God's son when he was supernaturally conceived in Mary and was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. We would say then that Christ is eternally God's son in expectation, okay? And was declared God's son in the fulfillment of that prophecy. And at the incarnation, he is God's son forever. You guys following? No? Okay. Were you not following for real? Okay. Does anybody need that again? I know that's a lot. Okay. What? Who? Where? All right. So, let's look at this word declared. Okay, the Greek word for that is horizo. Okay? And it is... Is it up there? 
the word not up there? Dern. Okay. Horizo. It's H-O-R-I-Z-O. The Greek word for horizo. H or the, the Greek word for declared is horizo. H-O-R-I-Z-O. You pronounce it H-O-R-I-D-Z-O. Z-O. Horizo. I'm starting to get into that stutter mode again. All right. It's a Greek word for declared. It refers to marking off boundaries. Okay. It actually comes from another word, horian. Okay. Horian. H-O-R-I-O-N which means to make boundaries for land or territory, okay? To make a direct boundary, something that is for sure the boundary of a nation, okay? That's the word it comes from. So horizo is where we get our word for horizon, which is the demarcation line of earth and the sky. Okay, what's the horizon? Earth and sky, the division line, right? Okay, so... That's cool for two reasons. Okay, number one, it shows a definite point when God became one of us to save us all, okay? He was declared the Son of God, which means at that point, the line was drawn. God became man, okay? He became one of us, all right? So, a point that was planned from eternity and played out at a certain point to mark a a horizo between life and death, okay? At that very point, we were able to live eternally. We were forgiven for our sins when we accept Christ. At that point, that is the mark for that. That is when that line was declared. He was declared God's son, and salvation was available for all at that point. That's a big point, right? Big point. Okay. Second reason is cool. Okay. Second, it, its relation to Rizzo has to horizon is cool because it shows a separation between heaven and earth, and that there is a boundary to go from earth and to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, that boundary is Jesus and accepting what he did. I think that's just so awesome that a word declared could have so many meanings behind it. Horizo, right? Just a simple Greek word that they probably never even thought about. But yet it means so many things. It was a marking line from where we could be, have salvation. Christ was born. He became man. Okay? And then second is that the line between heaven and earth. There is something you have to get past. Okay? It's not just you're not just going to get there. There's something you have to do to cross that boundary. When you guys go out of the country, what do you have to do? Passports, sometimes you get a visa, sometimes you get all these different things, right? And sometimes it's tough to do that, isn't it? Okay, there's a reason for that. There's a boundary that says, this is not your land, okay? We don't want you here unless you're safe, all right? So we're going to check this out. And God says the same thing. I don't want you here if you're not going to serve me. I don't want you here if you're not going to do what I say in my country, Right? There's a, there's a line that marks off. We have to do something first. We have to accept Christ. All right. So, next part. It says, power by the resurrection of the dead. Okay, let's look at the word power in Greek. I love Greek. I didn't even take the class, but I love it. If I took the class, I probably wouldn't like it anymore. All right, power by the resurrection of the dead. Paul continues here to explain the most conclusive and irrefutable evidence of Jesus' divine sonship with the power by the resurrection from the dead. Okay, by that extreme power... And his ability to conquer death, a power belonging only to God himself, okay, the giver of life, he established beyond all doubt that he was indeed God, the Son. Okay? Nobody else can do that. Matt, can you raise yourself from the dead? Okay. Everybody except for Matt cannot do that. All right, so power. The Greek word for power here is dunamis. Dunamis. Okay? D-O-N-A-M-I-S. And you pronounce it do-nam-is. D-O-O-N-A-M-I-S. Okay, so used here... Listen to this, guys. This is awesome. Used here means an inherent power. Power residing in a thing by virtue 
of its nature. Okay? The only reason Christ was able to rise from the grave and beat death is because by his very nature, he cannot die. Okay? By his very nature, he is eternal. Which means that when Christ was killed, he can't die. He has to rise from the grave again. That's how powerful God is as a man. That's how powerful God is as himself. Okay? So what's really cool about that? The next part says, according to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this power that Christ has by his nature has worked out through the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's how that power has worked out. Okay, that means two things. One, Christ is the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because if that power is by his nature, the Holy Spirit must be part of him. Okay? And two, the Bible says we are given the Holy Spirit, which means that we have access to that very same power. Wow, right? Suddenly, our problems don't seem too big. Instead of looking too big to conquer, they look too tiny in comparison to the solution. Okay, because what we just found out is that by Christ's very nature, He cannot die because He's eternal, right? But yet, that very power is worked out through the Holy Spirit. How does God work through us? Through the Holy Spirit. Okay, which means we have the exact same power that Christ had to rise from the dead. That is nuts. Do you guys get that? We have that power. Okay? Which means that these stupid problems we have in our lives and these stupid things that we have, they're not always stupid. You guys know what I mean. Just trying to make them look small. Okay? All these different things that we have that used to look too big to conquer, when we see the solution, they seem like piddly little things that shouldn't even be cared about. Okay? Because it's so big. The power we have access to... The power we have access to raise Christ from the dead, and not only that he's alive now and has been forever, so what in our lives cannot be solved? I would say nothing. However, God gave us free will, and we too often take hold of the want-to-be power that we think the world offers us, and because of that, we get stressed, we have anxiety attacks, we fail, we look down on ourselves, we look down on others, and, because, <clears throat> and but most importantly, we look at God and laugh in his face, saying, yeah, I know you made me, I know you created me, I know you love me, I know you want what's best for me, I know you planned my life, I know you raised yourself from the dead, because you can't die, okay? I know you did all those things, but I know me better than you. I know what I want better than you, okay? And I know what I should do more than you. So God, step back. I don't want it. How are we going to give up a power that's so great? How are we going to give up a power that can raise us from the dead? Do you guys realize that when you were saved, you were raised from the dead? You have eternal life, which means you're not dying. Do you get that? That's huge. All right. Verse 5 through 7 says... I didn't put it up there. All right, verse 5 through 7 says, uh, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the call of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Alright, so verses 5 through 7, the provision, the proclamation, the purpose, and the privileges of the good news. Okay? We get stuff from this, guys. It's not just serving God. God loves us for serving Him. Okay? Alright, so let's look at the provision. It says, among whom you also were, or it says, through whom we receive grace and apostleship. Okay? The provision, grace is unmerited, unearned favor in which a believer himself does not and cannot contribute anything of use. Grace is given to us. We can't earn it. We can't make it. We can't desire it. We can desire it, but that's not going to make it come to fruition. Okay? Grace has to be given to us through God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. What does that say? It's by grace. Not of my own. 
Good, good. All right. So grace is God's loving mercy in which he grants salvation as a gift to those who trust in his son. All right, so we're, number one, we're not going to get the grace unless we trust in his son. Okay? All right, and then, so we have grace. What's this apostleship? Get? It says you're given grace and apostleship. Okay, service is a form of apostleship. Service is a form of apostleship. We looked at how Paul addresses himself, how he addresses Christ, and now he's addressing the believers in general. We looked at the word apostolos already, and we saw that it had direct translation of one who is sent. Okay? We also saw that Paul was divinely sent by God along with 12 others directly, but in a broader sense, we are all sent by God into the world to be his witness. Okay? What does the Great Commission say? Do it. Right? Share me. I want to be known. Okay? And when we're saved, that's what we have to do to glorify God, okay? That's important. We look at the 13 apostles and think about them as awesome. We have the exact same calling they had. Share me. Make me known. Glorify my name. We look at those 13 guys and we think, wow, it's awesome that God could call them so, you know, exact and make them do these exact things. We're supposed to be doing the exact same things that those guys did. Our calling isn't less. That's pretty cool. All right, so what, what God has commanded us to do is just as important as what they did. All right, so let's look at the proclamation, okay? To bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Okay, that's this next part, okay? Verse 5 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. All right? To bring about obedience of faith among the Gentiles. We're not only called to salvation and service, okay, or grace and apostleship, we're called to be a witness so that we can bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Okay, that word obedience. When we come to faith, we surrender to a king. And some of this was thanks to Matt, and I added it to my lesson later. Um, he sent me a really cool email. So when we come to faith, we surrender to a king. In the old times, what the king said, you did. Okay? If the king said, hey, Colin, I want you to mow my lawn. If I said, poof, I'm done, right? Okay? If I don't do what the king said, I didn't do too well after that. Okay? All right. So if you didn't do it, you probably weren't around for much longer. And we looked over that and way too often because when we surrender to God for our salvation, we surrender to his obedience also. Okay? We surrender to having obedience in him. And God expects us to be obedient. If we're not doing, if we are not going to be punished, we're going to be put in our place. God does have mercy, but God does rule. No matter what. He is our king. And when we surrender to a king, we surrender to what that king says, which means we have obedience. Right? If we don't do that obedience, that king is going to punish us. It's Christians, all right? So don't think that God doesn't have mercy, but also don't think that God doesn't rule over your life. All right, the purpose. For his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. God did send his son to save the world, okay? To save us, you and me. God does love us. He does want us to prosper, but God is not here for our sakes, okay? God, God did not send Christ because he was worried about us okay what god really wanted us, he created us and does promise to take care of us but what we hear completely and totally for him okay but the only way we can give christ glory is if we know christ right and if we know god that's why we were saved okay man's salvation is a byproduct of god's grace but its main purpose is to display god's glory all right how many people in this world can say i have eternal life i have the power of god to live forever not everybody, right? That's displaying God's glory. Okay? 
They might not get it now, but they'll definitely get it at some point. I promise you that. All right, so don't think God does not love you. It's because of this gracious love that we are saved. Okay? Salvation is of importance to God for man's sake, but because of His perfection, it is infinitely more important to Him for His own sake. You guys following? All right. So, but that makes the fact that He loves us even more awesome because God is way better than us. Infinitely better. As a matter of fact, it is even comparable. Okay? So, God wanting to exalt His own name isn't selfish. It's what He deserves. Okay? So, we can't look at God and say, look, man, I know you want all this stuff, but that's, that's asking too much. All right? In human terms, yeah, it is asking too much. Give me all the glory. Right? That's wrong. But for God, He completely deserves everything we have. Okay? So asking for that glory is well deserved. And the one who deserves all of that is the one who died for us. Okay? That is absolutely unfathomable in our selfish society. All right? The love he has for us is proved in the next section we're going to get at. But what I'm trying to get at here, guys, is that this guy who deserves everything we have, this guy who deserves way more than we have, this God who made us, who is perfect and deserving of everything, died for us. Just so that we can bring him glory and have eternal life. That's gracious. All right. The privileges. The privileges. All right. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these privileges are not the only ones we have. Okay, listen right here. But the ones mentioned here include us being his beloved, his called ones, and our being his saints. Okay, guys, God loves us. He takes care of us. And not only that, he calls us to do his work. Okay? Imagine your boss told you that he thought you were one of the best fit for the job okay, that you were doing, so he hired you on full-time. Okay? You were the one for it, so he said, look, I'm going to take you for part-time and give you full-time promotion. Started paying you big bucks, right? He told you that he would sacrifice all he had so that you could continue to work for him because you were so good at that position. He would take care of your needs and so much more just because he thought you were good at what you did. But the reason he is interested in the fact that you are good at it is because you will help his business prosper. Right? If he didn't care about his business, he wouldn't care if he had good workers. Right? So that boss loves you, and he appreciates what you do, and he's glad you're doing it, but he's glad mainly because you're making his business do better. Okay? It's the same with God. God called us to work for him, to do the very things that we are best at. Okay? We just finished finding our spiritual gifts, and we saw that God made us for a purpose. Right? Just, we just studied that for five weeks in shape. So God, our boss, as Christians, told us that he would die so that you can know me and do the work that best fits you. Okay? That he would take care of us and cover our needs and the desires of our heart so that we could bring his name glory. That is who we serve, a God who is great and that deserves it all, yet is so gracious that he gives it all in return. It's pretty awesome, right? Alright, so that's 1, 5 through 7. We're going to get a couple application points. Um, things that you can get from this. and Where's the application slip at? Oh, ah, there it is. I found it. All right. What kind of servant are you? Okay. Do you serve out of love or out of supposed to-ness? Okay, we talked about Paul and the under-rower stuff, right? That's, that's a real word, I promise. Supposed to-ness. Okay. What kind of servant are you? Doulos? Okay. Are you a bondservant to Christ? Do you serve Him out of love? And do you decide that because you're going to serve Him forever? Okay. Are you an underrower? Are you in that bottom level of that ship, plugging away with all you have, even though it's frustrating, dangerous, and it might lead to death? 
Are you giving it all it's got? Are you serving God out of, I've been to church all my life and I'm supposed to? What is it? Okay. Are you doing your job as an apostle? Do, I, do you identify yourself as someone who is called to do God's work? Okay, is that how, hey, I'm Colin and I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I love God. You know, do you live your life that way? You don't have to meet everybody that way, but do you live your life as I'm Colin and I'm a Christian and I'm going to do God's work? No, we don't live our lives like that. We need to. Are you being a revolutionary to the Christian faith? And revolutionary, remember, is a negative term. Are we looking to the world for answers and revolutionizing the ideas Christ already saved us for? Or are we looking to the scriptures and doing the things that's laid out for us to do? What are we doing? Are you in the Word? Or are you going to look past Christ? Are you studying this book? Are you looking for the things that Christ wants us to do? Or are you being just like the Jews and looking to the Talmud, the rabbinical writings, and missing Christ? Do you look at God as someone who has all the power by His very nature? Or is He another man with a gift? Guys, all the problems we have, He is totally capable of taking care of. There's nothing God missed. There's nothing God doesn't know about. Okay, And we talked about that power. By His very nature, He's so powerful, He's unable to die. He's eternal. By His very nature. He can take care of anything. He's got it. All right. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much uh, for the insight into your word that you give. Um, God, I thank you for teaching us things and showing us things about how our society is, um, God, looking the wrong way. And God, I pray that it scares us into uh, looking towards you. God, I pray that we realize that you are that awesome. God, you are exactly what we need when we need it. And God, the world has nothing to offer that can even compare to the power you have. God, thank you so much for dying on the cross for us. God, thank you for um, making, it, making us able to have that power. God, you are an awesome God, and you're an all-knowing God, and um, you're a declared God. You're set in place. Thank you so much for that, God. And Lord, I just pray as we go through the week, God, that we can spend some time in your word. God, that we can look at the things you want us to do in our life, God, but seek you not for what we have going on, God, but to seek you for what you want us to do. And that's it. God, to read the word for what you want us to do, not for what we want you to fix. God, make us real in your word. God, show us where we're supposed to go. And God, prepare us for next week as we do verses 8 through 16 in Romans. God, prepare our hearts. And God, just show me what I'm supposed to teach and um, let others look over it, God, as they prepare. Um, because they come in here already read up on it, um, they'll understand a lot more what's being talked about. So God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time we had to meet. Um, God, I pray you send us out as apostles and uh, to do your work. You know, pray. Amen. All right, guys. Um, next week, we're doing Romans 1, 8 through 16. Okay? It's the second part of the introduction to the book. All right, so read through it. See what you can get out of it. Um, because if you come in here already read up on what we're about to teach, God's going to already show you some things. Okay? And more than likely, they're going to be on target with things that he's going to be taught. Okay? All right, cool. You guys are free to go.